Um, welcome everybody to the Forum for European Philosophy and to the LSE. My name is Christina Nussold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and a Fellow of the European Philosophy Department. And uh, the topic of tonight's lecture and discussion is music, which uh, we chose because, well, obviously music is very important to most, if not all, of our lives, I would dare say. Right? So we all enjoy music to some extent or another. We find that music um, is, is very valuable to us, it's very important to us. Um, so, and there's very many philosophical questions that are actually raised by music. So one of the questions is, why exactly is it that, that we find music so valuable? Um, why is it that it plays such an important role in our lives? Now, one obvious thing that might come to mind is that music has a very strong relation to emotions. Um, and, it, and it does so in two different ways. So on the one hand, we might say that music expresses emotions, right? We can say of a piece of music, or sometimes even of an instrument, that it's happy or sad or uh, excited or melancholic or whatever have you. Um, and it's an interesting philosophical question, actually, how music as an art form manages to express emotions, right? So usually we would describe emotions to sentient beings. Now, music is an art, it's not a sentient being, even though it's formed by sentient beings. So the question is, how does music as an art form manage to express emotions? Um, but also music, of course, elicits very strong emotions in us, right? So a, mu a piece of music can make us feel happy, sad, melancholic, excited, exuberant, what have you. And um, so another question is, how does it do that? So why should we feel emotions when we experience a piece of music, even though we know that the emotion that is expressed by the piece of music is not actually undergone by anyone, right? It's not. So you might say music is in a way like looking into a sad face, except there is no person really who is sad. So why is it nonetheless that it elicits this emotion in us? And also, if music can elicit negative emo emotions, such as sadness, in us, then why are we nonetheless drawn to that? Why is it an experience that is valuable to us? Um, Another question is, what role music plays for societies? Does it play a particularly important role for the cohesion of societies? Why do we find that many groups um, celebrate their coming together with music? Think of religious groups, cultures, cultural groups, you know, all kinds of groups that, that take music to be an essential part of their being a group. Why, why is that? Um, and also, what is the relation between music and language. So you might say that music is steeped with meaning, can, can be very meaningful to us, even though it doesn't have, in contrast to language, any obvious semantic content. So how can it be meaningful without having semantic content? Um, in other words, again, what is the relation between music and language? Um, now, there are many other philosophical questions I could go on and on, but this should suffice uh, as a sort of list of, brief list of examples of why music is philosophically interesting. Uh, now, as you might know, when, if you've come to other forum events, the Forum for European Philosophy is also very open to interdisciplinary dialogue and sort of exploring what, as philosophers, we can learn from other disciplines about these kinds of questions. And so today, in particular, we want to uh, address the question as to what we can learn from archaeology about um, the meaning and the value of music and the relation of music to language. And so it's my great pleasure that um, to discuss these issues with us tonight, um, we have Professor Stephen Meithen, who is a professor of early prehistory and pro vice chancellor at the University of Reading. 
and whose research interests concern early prehistoric communities and the evolution of human intelligence, language and music, obviously. Uh, and he has two long-term field projects, one in Western Scotland and one in Southern Jordan. And amongst other books, he has published the book The Singing Neanderthals, hence the title of tonight's lecture. He's also a book forthcoming uh, in November about water, another very important topic, so uh, keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, and his research has been uh, frequently featured not just in academic outlets, but also in radio and TV, most frequently in the BBC Two series, British Prehistory. He's also um, written or is writing regularly for uh, the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, and the New Scientist. And today he will uh, give a lecture to us for about 35, 40 minutes, right? So we will have plenty of discussion um, as well. And so without holding us up any further, I will just hand over to you and look forward to what we have to say. Thank you. Well, Christina, thank you very much for that uh, very kind introduction and uh, uh, very good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming along this evening. Let me start by thanking Christina and Juliana for inviting me to talk to this uh, fantastic organisation, the uh, European Forum for Philosophy. I am going to talk about music, music and language, and uh, use the term the singing Neanderthals to uh, try to encapsulate the core of my talk, which is that music has very deep evolutionary roots in us, coming a long time before language, and our fascination with music today, the reason that it imbues our life, that we find so much joy and so much sadness, is, it, is because we are products of evolution. And to understand that, we need to look into our evolutionary past. Now, uh, Christina was right that music is an incredible mystery. Why do we, why are our lives pervaded with it? Why do we spend so much of our resources buying CDs, DVDs, downloading iPods and so much to listen to music? We spend so much time going to concerts. Any social event is not complete unless there's music there. We use it in almost every single social occasion we can imagine. Intuitively, we think it's good for people to learn to play musical instruments and to sing. Now, why is that? It seems to me an absolute mystery. And uh, an equal mystery is quite exactly what music is, actually. You know, ever since John Cage composed his uh, piece, 4 minutes 33, I think, isn't it? piece of, not total silence, but just the orchestra sort of huffing and puffing a little bit, which is a fantastic piece of music, <coughs> we struggle to actually define what music is, and yet somehow we know that it's of fundamental importance to us. So this is what I'm going to address tonight. I'm going to try to provide some answers seen from my own uh, perspective. Now, when we... Um, Maybe the lights could go a little bit more. I don't, I don't think it's a little bit... Um, now, when we think of the past, think of the Stone Age past especially, 
Oh, I think that's better. Is that all right for everybody? When you think of the Stone Age past especially, we are rather good at our visual reconstructions today. So this is Homo heidelbergensis at half a million years ago. And we can't quite readily imagine them sitting, making their stone tools, butchering animals. And increasingly, archaeologists are good at reconstructing those activities and the environment in which they're set setting in. And we often describe, and we're becoming more sophisticated at describing the social interactions between these, um, between these people. And yet we don't normally think of these Stone Age ancestors as being musical. Because often we situate that with the high arts as something that is going to be the preserve of modern humans. Something that's got to be fairly recent, coming along with mathematics and science and... and uh, painting and sculpture. But I want to suggest otherwise, that in fact, these communities of half a million years ago and indeed earlier were highly musical. Musical pervaded their lives. And in fact, today, our experience of music is just a rather shallow reflection of that. Uh, and for, for, a re for a reason that I'll, uh, I'll come on to. Now, I am always slightly cautious um, talking about music. Uh, writing about music, I published a book, as Christina kindly said, about music and uh, <laughs> numerous articles, because I know very little about music. I am not a musicologist. I have tried to learn to sing, I've tried to learn to dance, I've tried to learn musical inference, totally failed in the all. <laughs> I cannot tell you, tell one difference between one key signature and the next. I do not understand music in that technical sense. I can't grasp it. I think there's something wrong with my brain, actually. That's another story. And neither do I know much about philosophy. And as uh, Christina says, philosophy is a, um, as music is an enormously important subject in philosophy. Philosophy's got enormous to contribute. No, I, no, no am I a psychologist nor a neuroscientist. Or any of those disciplines that no one would normally think might have something useful to say about music. My um, discipline is archaeology. I dig in the dirt, and this is one of my recent on ongoing excavations in Wadi Fanan. We're excavating a prehistoric settlement here that dates to about 12,000 years ago. <coughs> and um, that's what my uh, core academic activity is about. Although, as Christina said, I'm currently a pro-vice-chancellor, so my opportunities for research are a bit limited. So I dig in the dirt. Now, the problem for an archaeologist in music is this. The music, is the past is absolutely silent. Those bodies we dig up, these artefacts and these structures, they don't, they don't speak a word, let alone, let alone sing a note. I've absolutely no way of accessing what music, what singing, what dancing occurred in the past, other than circumstantial evidence, several indirect lines of evidence. So the question that you must be asking and it's quite a reasonable question. Why should an archaeologist be concerned with music? When it is such a difficult subject for the philosophers and the psychologists and the musicologists, who can actually go and listen to music? Who can set up experiments? I can't do any of that. So why should an archaeologist who has got these silent skulls and artefacts and bones be concerned with music? Well, well my answer is very simple. It's just a subject too important to leave to philosophers. <laughs> it's too important. It's too important to leave to musicologists and psychologists. 
music needs to be addressed from an evolutionary perspective, not a rather abstract evolutionary perspective, but by getting down in the dirt with the fossil remains and the artefacts and the remains of structures to try to infer the types of behaviours and uh, vocalisations, interactions that occurred in the past. Because if we don't do that, however good our philosophy and our psychology and musicology is, we'll be missing something that I think is absolutely critical to understanding music. And by that I mean understanding ourselves. Because with very few exceptions, we all engage with music in a rather profound way. Now, uh, having um, made, that, made that statement, let, let, let us just for a moment remind ourselves about that, about how music is so fundamentally important to all of us. Now, the developmental psychologist Colin Trevathan once summed it up to me in a perfect way. He said, we are born with a musical wisdom and appetites. He and many other psychologists have noted that babies, when they're born, they, they instinctively prefer singing to speaking. And those who are sung to tend to have enhanced development. Babies put on weight quicker. They socially interact quicker. How can that be? And why is that? They have hardly any experience of the cultural world other than what they acquire through when, when they are within the womb. And there's certainly cultural influences on them. How can they be so instinctively responsive to music and why? You know, when we don't know what music is, we don't know quite why we respond to it. Why should it be so important to music? Babies. And our interactions with babies is important as well. We talk to them instinctively with a high degree of musicality. It's called motherese, the uh, articulation of uh, vowels and the, the um, heightened cadences exception. Why do we do that so instinctively? It's like something in us knows that babies need music, maybe before they need language. Now, we also, uh, increasingly, with the um, uh, remarkable developments in neuroscience, are beginning to understand much more about music within the brain. Now, I'm not, I'm not a particular fan of neuroscience, I must say. I think there's enormous um, uh, difficult challenges with it, and sometimes it tells us the blindingly obvious to me, that bits of the brain relate to some activities and other bits of the brain relate to other activities. Um, but, uh, you know, how could it be otherwise? You know, how would it, you know, what does one expect? But nevertheless, certainly we are, over the last 20 years, have made profound advances in understanding which, that there are certainly musical centres within the brain, and certainly some aspects of music um, require many aspects of the brain. And I actually did, although I'm not going to talk about it, I actually did a little experiment myself uh, this is me just going to an fMRI scanner a number of years ago. You know, I just said I, I, I'm hopeless at singing. Well, I did actually do an experiment with a neuroscientist, Professor Larry Parsons at Sheffield, where I, um, I, I did scan my brain uh, beforehand. Uh, to scan my brain, I did lots of musical exercises in the scanner. I looked at which bits of my brain were becoming active, etc. Then I had a whole year of singing lessons. It was a nightmare. It was, most, it was the most humiliating experience I've ever had. Trying to learn something as an adult, really. And then I, and I didn't seem to make progress. But then when I scanned my brain into the decade a year later, I had quite fundamentally changed some aspects of my brain 
brain activity, which seemed to be somehow learning about music, even though it didn't sound much better while I was producing. So there is an immense amount of plasticity there. So I don't want you to think for a minute when I'm talking about evolution that I am not suggesting there's enormous amount of plasticity in the brain because I actually explored that uh, explored myself. Uh, but I do want to focus this talk about evolution. Now let me just remind you where we are on the evolutionary tree. Here's a rather, rather simple um, phylogenetic tree. And there we are, modern humans, down at the end here, uh, Homo sapiens, everybody alive on the planet today is Homo sapiens, and we uh, have a number of living relatives um, uh, alive today with whom we've shared common ancestors, all going back to about the earliest primates at around 65 uh, million years ago. And what I'm talking about tonight is just the very last bit of that phylogeny between the Australopithecines and modern humans. Now I think to actually understand the evolution of music and language in a profound, comprehensive sense, we need to go all the way back to the early, earliest primates, which essentially means doing comparative studies with the, uh, the apes, the monkeys and prosimians. But I'm just digging with that tiny little twig at the end, because that's when archaeology kicks in, as opposed to studying merely fossils and um, undertaking comparative work. Now we know that these living relatives of ours, with whom we share common ancestors, have a degree of musicality in their lives. You cannot fail to listen to the screams and the hoots and the pants of chimpanzees without somehow thinking there's a degree of musicality there. And some psychologists have explicitly described uh, the duets of gibbons, mated pairs of gibbons, who seem to duet together. They seem to synchronise in a way. And the chatterings of Juliana that have some sort of rhythmic rhythm to them, as having a degree of musicality about them. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think the, if we go back to the earliest ancestor in the Homo line, about six million years ago, our commonest with chimpanzees, I think our starting point has got to be that the vocalisations are similar to what we see in the chimpanzees uh, today. <coughs> Grunts, barks, screams, hoots. They don't seem to have a great deal of semantic content. They certainly evoke quite a lot of emotional response. There may be meanings with them that we simply are failing to grasp at the moment. Now, here's a um, simplified phylogenetic tree for uh, human evolution. Here we are down at the bottom with a common ancestor. That is between modern humans and chimpanzees today around six million years ago. And here's us here, Homo sapiens, this tiny little branch here, appearing around 150,000 years ago in Africa. And we have music and language. Now the relationship between music and language is complex and I'll come to that in a moment. We assume the common ancestor is similar to the chimpanzee. There's neither music there. There's, this is not an entity we would describe as music. We might describe that musicality. There's, no, there's no, nothing would say, yeah, that's music. And there's certainly nothing would describe as language. So sometime between the time of that common ancestor and Homo sapiens here, we have not only the evolution of music, we've also got the evolution of language, and some sort of association between them that we've got to, got to explore. And we have to explore the evolution by putting together 
the bits and pieces of evidence we can gain of these extinct ancestors. The Australopithecines, the early Homo, the later Homo. And they're all extinct. Quite why they're all extinct is itself an interesting question. We, you know, we're the only genus with just one species alive. And if we take, you know, if we go back another time, you know, you take a quarter million years ago, probably got one, two, three, four, maybe five types of different humans alive on the planet at the same time. They've all gone there. There's only one left, Homo sapiens. It's an interesting question. It might have something to do with language and music. What I've also got in this chart is uh, just an indication of what, how the brain size is changing. From about 450cc in the early Australopithecines, about the size of the chimpanzee, through to uh, around 1500cc with the large-brained hominins. Now, this is what I would um, argue is uh, the evolutionary history of music. Uh, this isn't an original idea. You might go back into, you can go all the way back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who argued that music and language had a common root. Uh, and others in the 18th, 19th century have argued similarly. Um, most recently, the ethnicologist uh, Blackie uh, argued for a pre-linguistic musical mode of thought and action, and I think that's absolutely right. So what, I, what, I, what I'm going to be arguing is that today we have something called music and something called language. We know they overlap to some extent. We know there's lots of musicality in a conversation. We know there's lots of language-like characteristics of music. But us, we, we do have them as separate entities. I'm going to be arguing that these emerge from a single form of communication that at some time bifurcated into those two systems we have today. Uh, of course, others would argue differently. Argue, some would argue that language evolved and music is an offshoot of that. Or music evolved and language is an offshoot of that. Or they evolved entirely independently. But uh, my, my, my proposition is, is, is that there was a single system of communication. That sufficed for the majority of human evolution. And in fact, in quite recent time, they bifurcated. Now let's start by looking at some of these earliest Australopithecines. I've only got about 30 minutes, if that. So I'm, we're going to have to move quite rapidly through <coughs> human evolution, just pulling out some highlights. Uh, and here we're starting with some of these uh, Australopithecines down here. Here's a, here's a cart one of these guys. You can see brain size, about the same as a chimpanzee. Can you hold but, it over in front of the light? So yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to turn the light on? No, about the same as a chimpanzee, <laughs> but quite different dentition. Quite different dentition and much higher degrees of um, bipedality. Uh, we can look at these in, 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 a, in a while, we can pass them around, etc., if, if we like. Um, now, this is a, quite a complex, large group, and there's probably several other species alive here, and trying to identify which are species and which are just variants is, is, is rather complicated. Um, the the Australians were. Uh, much heavily more, much more bipedal than the than the chimpanzees are today, um, and they probably had a high degree of tool manufacture and use. And the most um, famous one we know of is, is Lucy, three and a half million years ago, Australopithecus afarensis, as we see here, and um, quite a about a meter high, 
and um, uh, yeah, and um, the larger brain hominins of this group uh, are sometimes put into Homo. His Homo rudolfensis, found by Richard Leakey in 1972, I think. Larger brain size, around 650 cc, but broadly the same same um, grade of hominin. Now we not only have their fossil bones, we have some of the archaeology from their behaviour. So we have such as Kubi 4 in here. We have scatters of stone artefacts, just with the older one chopper here, and scatters of heavily fragmented, often butchered animal bones, from which we can reconstruct some aspects of their lifestyle. And uh, we tend to use that to think that they were living in quite complex social groups, in fairly open savanna-like environments. They were either hunting or more likely scavenging on large game. Meat was evidently important in the diet, along with fruits and roots and seeds, etc. And what were their vocalisations like? Do these have language and music as we have today? Well, I've said already that our best guess is it's probably like, a bit like the chimpanzee. But we can see some interesting changes in the anatomy, at least, which would suggest the vocalisation is different. So compared to the chimpanzee, there's quite reduced dentition. The teeth are simply smaller. Now, what does that mean? That means that the actual um, area within the mouth is larger. There's a greater capacity to make a wider range of, of, of sounds. Uh, equally, we can look at what particular selective pressures there are. We know that these hominins would have been under pretty severe competitive pressure from hyenas, from lions, other scavenging animals, animals wanting to have the hominins themselves. They're living in a fairly open environment, and the main defence of other primates is climb trees. Now, if they haven't got climb trees, they can't really work much more together socially in terms of uh, predator defence. And one suspects that vocalisations in terms of alarm calls, as we see among many primates, uh, calls for help and support are becoming more important. So we can imagine there are selective pressures on them for an enhanced range of vocalisations. And for socialising. Now, quite famously, uh, Robin Dunbar wrote a um, very good book called, I think it's Grooming Gospel Language. And he argued that uh, among these early hominins, uh, vocalisations were beginning to take the place of grooming. In, in, in primates, grooming is not only a way for removing parasites from each other, it's also a way of building a bond with somebody, building an alliance communicating with them. And Dunbar argued that as these groups were getting larger, it's just too many people to groom. So by, by using vocalisations, you're effectively beginning to groom more than one person at once. <coughs> so he argued that for building their social relations, vocalising was becoming rather important. And in fact, it's a means of emotional manipulation. And you know, and he says today, when you start getting intimate with somebody, you start pouring them all over. What we're really doing, we're reverting back to the uh, very ancient hominin way of, uh, of, of actual grooming. Now, the critical thing here is the need to be emotional. We're not talking about the 
sex pressures for alarm calls, etc. When we're talking about the vocal grooming, about building up relations, about expressing one's emotion, this becomes really critical in the decision making of these hominins in terms of building up their social network, in terms of defending themselves against the world. And I think this is it's this period of human evolution where our emotional sensitivity to variations in pitch and rhythm and timbre are beginning to become really important. It's this time in the savannah between three and one million years ago that we evolved that sensitivity. Because at this time, to tell somebody that you want to be friends with them, that you didn't trust them, or tell somebody that you're embarrassed, or you had to do it by those variations in pitch and timbre and rhythm. You didn't have the words for it. So I think this is when our emotional sensitivity to sound evolved. And that is, we have a legacy of that today. That is what we carry with us today. That is why we are so responsive to the emotional aspects of, of sound. Now let's move on to this next grade of hominin here. Homo erectus, Homo ergaster, maybe loads of Homo habilis. Now these are... Uh, a uh, really interesting group of hominins because these were the first groups that dispersed out of Africa pretty soon after two million years ago and got a fair amount into the, into the old world. The most famous skeleton is the so-called Narakotome boy. Homoragaster, dating to about one and a half million years ago and this is the, one of the most complete skeletons of a hominid ancestor found. Uh, the skull is pretty similar to this one as an adult. This is Homo erectus, but a very, very similar size. Critical thing about this, this, this grade of hominin is full bipedalism. They're walking effectively as efficiently as we are. Now, one of the reasons, characteristics of that is just by the fact of picking the upright, the larynx becomes descended. Okay? It becomes lower down the throat. Okay? You know, it's, it's just a function of holding your head upright, vertically. The consequence of that is uh, you have a, an elongated musical instrument. There's a larger windpipe. So just as you got that reduced dentition earlier, now you've got other changes in anatomy which aren't being selected for language or music. They're being selected for movement and um, and diet, etc., but are having musical implications. We also know that by the enhanced walking, and some would argue that what these had evolved for was in fact running. These are, these are, the anatomy here isn't just the walking, it's about running. Therefore we've got enhanced breathing control. So again, there's another spin-off for the ability to control vocalisations, to make a wider range of sounds, to become effectively more musical. Now these are very strange creatures because the, um, the bone size here only got to about 1000 cc. So that's the size of maybe a, a, an infant or a young child. Okay. And yet that, is a f that would be at a, um, as a fully grown adult, that's brain size. So it's a small brain size on an anatomy that's less like an adult. They're not, they're not childlike, they're fully evolved species. Very similar to us in some ways, very different in others. And trying to work out the behaviour of these greater hominins, I think, is one of our greatest challenges 
because they're the earlier hominids, like the uh, Australopithecines and Homo habilis. Analogies with living primates are much easier to make. These are very different. They're very different living primates, very different from living humans. Now, I think that muscular control required for bipedalism enhanced potential for not only variety of vocalisations, but also for gesture and body language. And, you know, one of the key things that I believe about music is that it's not just about sound, it's about movement as well, and movement and dance. And one of the worst things we've done in the Western musical tradition is stick people on stage and make them stay exactly still, or in the audience sit exactly still while there's music playing. Go to any traditional societies, movement is absolutely integral to it. Okay? And I think that's, we see these hominins. This muscular control they've got uh, would have not only, and, and also the consequence of bipedalism were enhanced rhythm and then the phenomenon of bodily entrainment that we know is so critical to our appreciation of music today. How do you get into a rhythm? Now we know that bipedalism is really critical to rhythm and bipedalism is somehow really related. We know that from the work of neuroscientists or, or, or psychologists like Michael Tolt, who's worked with people suffering from Parkinson's and Alzheimer's who have lost the ability to walk with a fluid gait, but found that by putting a metronome externally to them, just with a really good rhythm, they somehow they can regain that walk and they gain that fluid mechanism. So I think what they're doing there is re-putting something back into the brain that's become lost and somehow. So I think with, with a homo, um, this grade of homo, homo erectus, homo erectus, we're not only having more musicality here, audibly, we're having much more dance. We're having body gesture, body movement as a form of communication and emotion expression. And now there's the physique there to do that in a way that early hominids didn't. Right, we're going to move on now quite quickly to this next, uh, with this grade of hominin. Moving up to the Neanderthals and modern humans, and we're going to see four evolutionary developments here that I think are absolutely critical to our musical capacity today. The one we share as a species, and the one that each of us individually in this audience have. <laughs> And now the first of these evolution developments is known to anthropologists as the big helpless baby problem. Um, anybody who's known, who's had a baby, knows that often they're entirely helpless and certainly a problem, because uh, babies just can't do much. You know, they, they're really useless. They just lie there. They need feeding, they need clothing, they need looking after, they need cuddling, they need all of that, all of that business. Why are they so helpless? Well, the, the basic reason from an evolution point of view is that we give birth much too early. You know, our gestation period is just nine months. For a mammal of our size, it should be close to 18 months. Why do we give birth so early to such useless, helpless babies? Well, the reason we do is because we like, we, we, we've evolved large brains. And there's constraints on the size of the brain that can move through the... Um, pelvic canal. So evolution has reached a compromise. You see in those pictures of birth where the head gets all distorted and squeezed, etc. Okay. We're at an absolute limit of the size of brain that we can give birth to. Absolute limit. Okay. 
And if we want, so if we want to, to grow a big, a larger brain, we've got to give birth to babies early so they can develop outside of the womb. So we agreed to suffer. We don't agree; it has happened. Um, nine months a year of these helpless babies until they start maturing, becoming start looking after themselves a bit better. Okay. So, but what do you do with these helpless babies? Well, one thing, the you've got to very rapidly engage in that socialising, social communication with them. And we know what we do today. We sing to them, we comfort them, we play the rhythm, etc. And Dean Falk, an anthropologist, has particularly suggested, very good argument, that with these large babies, imagine what it's like being a prehistoric Stone Age mother. You've got to carry them around. You've lost your body hair. That's another evolution story you've not gone into. So unlike in gorillas and chimpanzees, the baby hasn't got something to cling on to. You've got to be carrying them. Okay? But then you also got to do your own foraging. Pick your berries, dig up your roots, etc. So she argues what's happening at this stage in human evolution is you're putting babies down, doing your work. How do you maintain that bond? What's the surrogate physicality of the bond? She sings, sings to them. And she's arguing that's where the mother starts. Because that's a way of maintaining the emotional connection between the mother and the baby when you're having to lose that physical connection. I think it's a very good argument and uh, it means that you know, when we are singing to our babies today, that's probably one of the most ancient arts that you can possibly imagine. I think it's been going on millions and millions of years. I think that's quite a profound thing to, to do, to sing to a baby in terms of its evolutionary significance. The other thing here, probably one of the first artefacts ever made was a baby sling. You know, it's probably one of the earliest bits of clothing or artefacts that were, were produced. Now, what's the second evolution development? The reduction of sexual dimorphism. Now, we know that gorillas, male gorillas, are much bigger than female gorillas. And basically, they have a harem and they get their way with the women. They mate with whom they want to mate with, because they're physically very powerful. What we see happening in evolution between, between two and one million years ago is a big change in body size, body differences. These are what the Australopithecines were like, very similar to gorillas today, and we just suspect they had a similar sort of social organisation. But what happens in evolution is that we have an increase in male body size, but even substantial, more substantial increase in female body size, so they're becoming much more, much similar. Now, some argue, some anthropologists argue that that, chain, that leads to a change in the mating systems. That there's reduced male-to-male -male competition. There's increased female choice of who the female wants to mate with. Which genes does she want in her offspring's in her offspring. Increased pair bonding and male provisioning. So some would argue that what's happening here are the males are having to begin to display more, actually having to attract the females, rather than just using brute force as like in the as in the gorillas today. Charles Darwin got this right, writing in the Origin of Species in 1871. He argued it is probable that the progenitors of man, either males or females or both sexes, before acquiring the power of expressing mutual love in articulate language, endeavour to charm each other 
with musical notes and rhythm. Now, he's drawing a direct analogy with birdsong there, okay? But I think that works perfectly for what's happening at this stage in evolution. As males are having to begin to compete for females, increase female choice, and one way that I think the males were displaying was by using <laughs> music and song and dance. That's what we see all around us today. Sexual display through music. You know, why, why, is, why, 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 why is Mick Jagger, was Mick Jagger so attractive? I have no idea. <laughs> Something to do with that music. Something to do with that music somehow displays a degree of cognitive ability. Because music's hard, damn hard to do. Articulating sounds for singing. Really hard, I can't, I couldn't do it. It's really hard to do. Something about physicality of movement, something about coordination. Working in a group shows about teamwork. It's, it's musicality is an extraordinary way to display to somebody, I've got, got pretty damn good genes and you want these in your offspring. Okay? So you can see this little lady here, she's uh, finding Mick Jagger rather more attractive than this uh, punk she's next to, really. I can't, I can't see much difference between them. But anyway. <laughs> so anyway, so musicality becoming a form of sexual play. Now, we don't know that's the, we don't know, obviously we don't know that's the case, but what these hominids are beginning to do, they're also beginning to make really fine artefacts, these hand axes, like this, which have high degrees of symmetry, high aesthetics, which I think is also about display. It's displaying what ability to make an artefact that goes far beyond what's needed functional needs. So I think we do have some evidence that this sexual display is happening at the time. And if they're doing it with stone artefacts, I suspect they're doing it with, um, with stone tools, with, with music. Now, I've got to move on. In the third process happening this time, I think, is dispersal and big game hunting. We've got Homo agaster in Africa around two million years ago. It disperses out into the old world, gets into, uh, gets into Southwest Asia, gets into Europe. Oxgrove Man, some of you I'm sure have heard of as a descendant here, gets all the way over to China, gets right down into Java, gets to Flores Island, where it involves an offspring, offshoot involves into Flores Mine. One thing that's happening, I think, as it's dispersing out, is it's increasingly finding new types of environments, new types of animals, new types of birdsong, and one of the big influences on that vocal communication would have been vocal imitation of bird sound, animal calls, etc. Some people have argued that this is the roots of language itself. I don't think it goes that far, but I think it plays a really important role. And the anthropologist Brent Berlin has, has, has spoken about uh, sound synesthesia, how lots of the, the words try to capture not only the sound of animals, but also their movement. As you know, you know, little... Little insects, little creatures tend to have small words associated with them. Bee, ant, you know, it's not rhinoceros or elephant, they're big animals. So the word itself, the sound itself, somehow captures the size of the animal. Very, very, very interesting ideas. So I think that engagement of the natural world is playing an important role in our evolution. And also the significance of cooperation and group bonding. Now these um, early humans, whether we're dealing with the Homo erectus on the African savannas, who are uh, doing lots of sharing of food, lots of childcare, or with the 
Homo gaster erectus heidelbergensis and neanderthalensis who are dispersed out of Africa, who are engaged in big game hunting. These are really cooperative societies. They're doing immense amount of sharing in them. You know, we often get caught into the idea that evolution is about selfish genes and the success of the individual, etc. Cooperation critical to these societies, okay? Uh, now, and group hunting, particularly, would have really depended upon cooperation and trust. This was dangerous stuff for these early hominins, and when we go to the Neanderthals, particularly where we have a larger fossil record, we can see that very high frequency of those bones, have, of these individuals, have got broken bones, have suffered injuries, which I suspect are coming from big game hunting. It's dangerous stuff. Now, the, the thing with, dangerous, with big game hunting, hunting horse or bison as here, occasionally mammoths, sometimes rhinoceros, with throwing or short thrusting spears, is that you've got to have teamwork and you've got to trust the people you're working with. You know, if I'm hunting with Christina here, I've got to be absolutely confident that Christina is going to throw her spear to hit that charging buffalo at exactly the right time, because otherwise I'm going to be the dead meat rather than the bison. Okay. How would these groups have built up trust? How they have done it? I think they did it in the same way that we build up trust today. And how we do that? We do it by singing and dancing together. Kids in playgrounds, football teams, church choirs. Somehow singing together, dancing together, dissolves the individual, builds up a sense of group, builds up trust and cooperation. And we see that in so many societies, traditional societies around the world today, when some big event is going to happen, they'll sing and dance beforehand. We'll see it today. What will we see before the Olympic starts? Fantastic great musical event, the opening ceremony. It's about building up a sense of trust and cooperation. So I think to have lived like this, this sort of singing and dancing was essential. I haven't got much evidence for that. We've got a few sites, such as here, this is a picture of me Rather, rather too many years ago, I'm afraid, but anyway. Um, and here we've got the strange site built to sleep about 30,000 years ago, with these strange circular structures demarcated by these large stones and bits of bone. These aren't huts, they're not foundations. They seem to be demarcated areas, I think, for performance. And I think that's what's happening here. I think these are dancing and singing areas for these groups who are camping at these, at these sites. Now, I must move on rapidly. We're going to come to the Neanderthals now. Okay. So, here's a Neanderthal skull. The plastic's come anyway. He's a modern human. They're almost identical. Certainly in brain size, they're very, very similar. You'll see that there are differences in terms of the size of the, size of the brow ridges, the um, angle of the face, some dimensions of the, some shape of the skull at the back. But in brain size, they're very, very similar. And yet all the Neanderthals are extinct and we are here today. Now let's, um, so the Neanderthals, we shared an ancestor with the Neanderthals about half a million years ago, came a against us. We evolved in Africa, the Neanderthals evolved in Europe and Asia. Here they are. Uh, physique much like us. A bit more stocky, a bit more muscular, a bit shorter, but... You know, they're, they're past for pass for humans, certainly past for Olympic sprinters, very muscular, very strong. Making some fantastic stone artefacts. This sort of Le Balmois technology that's called, making beautiful spear points, 
with a very uh, clever technique of stone making that very few people can replicate today, and they're doing it routinely. Now, with those big braids the same size as ours, with living through really challenging Ice Age conditions quite successfully for uh, 300,000 years, with this fantastic technology, some would say, they've got to have language. How could they have survived without language? They're just like, what would that big brain for being used if it's not used for speaking? How would they have done all that cooperation, cooperative hunting and gathering? How they have passed on the knowledge of how to make those stone tools from one generation to another if they didn't have language? Others, including myself, take those arguments on, but say, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because there's two things we're lacking in the Neanderthals. One is evidence of symbolic artefacts. Clearly symbolic artefacts. There's no art among the Neanderthals. There's no rock paintings. There's no sculptures. There's no visual symbolism happening. Now, in my mind, if there's no visual symbolism, I don't think there's going to be any audible symbolism. And language, it's a system of symbols. Secondly, there's a military cultural stasis. Why do they make these fantastic stone tools? They make them year in, year out, over and over again, for hundreds of thousands of years. There's no technological <coughs> advancement. Now, it seems to me language is a way, if you're learning something by language, it's a way that you couldn't help technology evolve. You know, if I'm trying to explain to Christina how to make a stone tool, we'll talk about it, she'll say, well, try this, do it like that, do it like that. And gradually, you, technology develops, it evolves. I think language, it's, it's, you can't avoid it if you've got language. Equally, so with this static technology, very advanced, but very static. I think that's a sign that they did not use words as a compositional language in the way that we have it today. So what I argue for the Neanderthal communication is that it has built on this evolutionary history of musicality. And that what it was, was uh, um, it was holistic. So rather than using a whole series of separate words, it's had, if you like, phrases, musical phrases. Bit like the pantoots of a chimpanzee. They're not individual words, it's the whole event has meaning. It's a little bit like a musical phrase. That's the key thing, not the individual note. Very manipulative, just like we do with words, just like we do with music. Multimodal. It's as much about body gesture, sign language, as, as about audible. High degrees of musicality and high degree of mimesis. So I think this is a very sophisticated communication system, one without words, it's not quite music, it's not language, it's got shared bits of both of them. Um, and this was the, well, it's, there's a more formal definition um, down there. And I think this sort of communication system sufficed for those hominins and also sufficed for the ancestors of modern humans in Africa, Homo helmio, as somebody called them, and the earliest Homo sapiens. But as here, Homo sapiens, I think we're seeing the evolution of music and language. Now, Homo sapiens, our species, we evolved in Africa around 200,000 years ago. We are all Africans, okay? We're all Africans. We dispersed out of Africa around 
60, 50, 60,000 years or so ago. Uh, and although there may be some interbreeding in the in essence, we, we have the African heritage. And the earliest modern humans are found in East Africa and in South Africa. And uh, the, one of the most important sites is Blombos Cave here. Now, this is, uh, this is a cave on the coast of South Africa where we've got the earliest art objects from. Okay. There's other caves where they've got pigments, red pigment being used, but this is the, this is the first ones. And um, here's me in Blombos Cave. I can't remember what year was this. Was, was this? I think maybe this was 2003, perhaps. Here's some really fine stratigraphy of hunter-gatherers who'd come using the cave year and after year, and occasionally there was blown sand coming in and there was their occupation deposits. And within these deposits, dating to about 70,000 years ago, are the very far first clearly unambiguous art objects. Now, we use that word art carefully. It's got deliberate geometric designs on. This is a bit of red ochre that's engraved. Lots of red ochre pigments. And within these groups, we're starting finding the first beads as well, first necklaces, and some very sophisticated stone artefacts. And very soon after they're made, we get this second out of Africa dispersal of Homo sapiens into the Near East, very rapidly into Europe, into Australia, across the Bering Straits, down in South America. And within a few thousand years, all those other hominins who have been living in the old world, the Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Homo halodegensis, Homo frontis, they've all gone extinct. Homo sapiens have outcompeted them all. What was the difference? Well, I think what happened in Africa sometime between 270,000 years ago, is that this ancient communication system, this holistic, manipulative, multimodal, musical, mimetic system that the Neanderthals and Homogaster have been using, divided into two distinct systems. One is what we call language today. Communication system specialising in transmission of information. Telling stories, actually. That's what language does so effectively. Tell stories. Passes on information. Pretty rubbish at other stuff. Pretty rubbish at actually building trust and cooperation. Pretty rubbish at expressing emotion. That's what music specialises in. So rather than having one system trying to do both not very well, Homo sapiens evolved these two. Now, quite what the selective pressures for there is, quite what genetic changes were involved, is a story I'm not going to go into here. It's, it's even more speculative than what I've been talking about. But what I, what I think is that this is, this is happening in Homo sapiens. And therefore, when they get into, say, Europe, you've got the using Neanderthals, that musicality form of communication. And they're outcompeted by language-using modern humans. Because language is simply better at transmitting information. These could learn quicker, exchange information quicker. They were living in a symbolic world that the Neanderthals were not doing. And the Neanderthals could compete. And it's at this time, so late in the evolution, that we get the first musical instruments. So I have been talking about musical instruments, but that musical instrument has been the human body. 35,000 years ago in Germany, this mammoth bone flute was made. <coughs> here, here I am visiting the cave with uh, Nick Conrad, who, who found it and pieced it together. Okay. 
music is suddenly becoming um, divorced from the body with the invention of musical instruments. And it's quite interesting, these were found just tossed away in a, in a rubbish heap, suggests that it was really becoming very pervasive in society at that time. So, to conclude, why music? Why that question I started with? Why do we all like music? Why is it so important to our lives? Why do we invest so much time in it? I'd say it's quite simple. Because we are the lucky beneficiaries of a pre-linguistic but musical Stone Age past. Because our ancestors were even more dependent on musicality in terms of communicating, building their social links, building a sense of group identity, building social action, than we are today. And we've inherited that. Now, to some extent, language has done damage to it, I think. Because I think we've almost become desensitised to music because of use of language. And I think we see that in some of our um, children who don't develop language, for whatever reason, but develop really quite profound musical skills. Because somehow our language is overriding, deriding our musical abilities. So, what I've given you tonight is a great deal of speculation, and I, I, I make no apologies for that. What else am I supposed to do? Because the past is silent. But what I'd argue is if, we, if we're not prepared to speculate about the past, we'll never try to grasp the evolutionary roots of music. And if you don't do that, all our discussions coming from philosophy and psychology and musicology and comparative psychology and so forth, very important, but they miss one enormous aspect of why music is important to us. It's because there are once singing Neanderthals, and if there hadn't been singing Neanderthals, there wouldn't have been talking modern humans. So, thank you very much indeed. Which is why I think music is so important in schools, in primary schools. 
And all this various pressures on schools and teachers, etc., to gradually squeeze music out of the curriculum is seeing so damage to our sense of children growing up and their and their and, and their development. So that's the message I get from traditional societies: is that uh, music is participatory and all pervasive. You just do it, you know, as you go around, you just sing, you dance a bit, you break into it. It's not something that you're either doing music or you're not. It's just part of part of life. And I think that's probably similar to early human societies um, as, uh, as well. We uh, went to a concert by the BBC singers about four years ago, in which one or two of the pieces weren't musical, uh, but they were just um, kind of a congregational uh, formulation of sounds and shits all together. And this connected this with perhaps with chanting, non-musical chanting. Oh, this fits into the scheme of things. Yeah, I think, I, I think that sort of music, you know, that sort of musicality, I don't know whether it's music or not, that sort of musicality might be quite a good model for some of the sorts of musicality in our earlier humans. Because it's musicality without, without words that's being made by the human body. So a bit like, you know, it's called scat singing, or maybe some of the um, mantras sung in, in other traditions, I think they are probably quite good analogies for some of the sorts of sounds that we might have had in the, in the, in the, in the past. Uh, because they're really expressive things that human body, but they seem to be lacking semantic content in some regard. So I think they're very interesting and it would be good to do some more academic explorations of those. Now, quite how we can ever make the link between those and the sort of communication path, I don't know. I mean, it's enormous challenges. But I think they're very interesting to explore, and I'd like to look at more, more, more of those. <coughs> you know, to give yourself some idea of, you know, people say, well, what would it sounded like in the past? What would it have been like? And I think invoking those, those examples are a really, really good idea. I'm just wondering where you place uh, and which homo you place it, it with the invention of fire on the timeline where that comes about. Yeah, fire is, fire is very interesting. Um, and archaeologists and anthropologists are quite split as to when it comes about. I'd put it reasonably early with the um, homo habilis, early homo erectus, largely because if the living in environments with less trees and more open environments, this is massively important in terms of present defence and protection. It's also pretty important in cooking food, and we know that cooked food becomes important in the changes of human anatomy through time. So I'd put it quite early, and of course fire also begins to play a very important role in social connections as well. We all still have that instinctive thing, sitting around a fire, talking, breaking a song, etc. So I'd put it quite early, and I'd put it as playing an interesting role in this particular story. But it is something that's very difficult to get good evidence for. There are claims for ground that looks like burnt clay patches going at least to half a million years ago in, in places in the UK, going up to a million years ago in Africa pretty difficult to know exactly whether these are fires or not. 
pretty important. It's also really important to keep it warm as well. You know, these, these, at some time, there's a loss of body hair. Fire is going to be really important for people keeping, uh, keeping, keep, keeping warm. But it's difficult to write a uh, book about. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost as hard as music, really. <laughs> Leg bone of a young bear. The femur. Yeah. The long bear. Yeah. 
It's had two holes in it, but they're much more likely to be coming from the canines of a carnivore that oh. pierced it. And when it was microscopic analysed, it is covered in gnaw marks. So it's much more likely that this bone was the accidental oh. Oh. Uh, had accidental similarity to a flute coming from a gnawed bone by, by a carnivore. Now some archaeologists still disagree with that. There was a very important article published in the Journal Antiquity, oh, I don't know, 1999, perhaps 2000 or so, that put this very strong argument that this is not a Neanderthal flute. But it became into, you know, popular wisdom that Neanderthal flute was discovered. Now, I wouldn't argue that Neanderthals didn't make musical instruments. I don't think they made complex musical instruments. I'm sure that they used sticks and uh, bark and logs for drumming, just like chimpanzees do, but more sophisticated, they probably had wordy things, etc. But I think manufacturing complex instruments, like flutes, takes a degree of technical skill, imagination, creativity, that I think was just beyond the Neanderthal ability to do. So I think they had musical instruments, I don't think they had flutes. And that's what we don't remember, this is, this is, these are the earliest flutes we've got. They come with the same time as the very first cave art in France, in, the, in, in, in Germany, in these caves. So it looks like a bit of that whole cultural development there, of that, me, that high music, but not the musicality I've been talking about in the other. You've yeah. destroyed my faith in the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> well, the don't believe everything you read in the papers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very thankful. Have you responded to the cheesecake argument? Yeah, I, I think it's cheesecake argument. I think it's just nonsense. <laughs> uh, you know, Stephen Pinker in his book, the. Um, Forget what, what is it called? The language. Forget the title. How the Mind Works, thank you. And it's How the Mind Works, a great thick book. He said, oh, da 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 music, yeah, it's just, it's just a cheesecake. He, by which he meant is that the hard work in evolution was done through evolving useful things like language, like mathematics. And then once we had those, a little frippery that came out that was music. How, how fortunate about it. It's just like eating cheesecake. Now, how could anybody think that's the case? Just our day-to-day -day experience tells us that music is something much more profound than that. Our interaction with babies, I've said, what we know about the brain, tells us music is, is fundamentally more deeply embedded in us than I think language or mathematics or anything else is. So I'm at a loss of how a highly intelligent person like Stephen Pinker could ever think that music is just cheesecake. And, you know, I don't know what else to say about that, Yes. Is there any evidence from the people of Flores or for representational art or musical? No, no, there isn't. I mean, I, I'm afraid I didn't talk about the Flores people very much, um, but there's not at all. And their stone artefacts remain rather controversial. As, as I'm sure many of you know, a few years ago on um, Flores Islands in Indonesia, there was a remarkable discovery of a very small hominin which had a small brain. Uh, small body size, but quite strange anatomy, but dating uh, very recently, only going extinct about 14,000 years ago. Total shock to the academic establishment. Uh, and numerous theories have been put around as to how could, well, you know, what is this? How did it get there? Um, 
several different hypotheses. One is that this was a dispersed from Africa at about four three or four million years ago of Australopithecines that dispersed all the way from Africa all the way down to Indonesia and lived there and evolved and became extinct much like an Australopithecine. Now, maybe that, that seems questionable. That could could possibly have adapted and evolved through all these different environments to get all the way down to Indonesia. Another hypothesis is that on that Homo erectus dispersal, the first <coughs> that spread to Florence Island, and then just like other large mammals, a process of dwarfism had happened. You know how on these small islands, Mediterranean islands, is where you get dwarf elephants, you get dwarf, what else do you get dwarf? Hippodromus. Hippodromus, things like that. But this was a dwarf hominin, that somehow Homo erectus had become a dwarf species. And maybe had maintained some of those tool making skills. Uh, I think the debate is still out on it. The that idea about becoming dwarfism is difficult to accord with some of the different anatomy in the postcranial skeleton, um, so, I, so I understand. But we've only got the one or the two sides. There's no representational art there. And the stone tools there, which involve quite sophisticated stone tools, of the type you'd associate with modern humans, it's not clear whether they are, were made by Florismine, Homo floriensis, or whether they were made by later hominins using those caves. So it's still reads in all sorts of controversy, and it's, and it's very difficult. I suspect they had some degree of musicality. But I, uh, trying to look at those other capabilities is, is mired in even greater difficulty than we have in these, these other sites. What's fantastic about that, that discovery is that it just knocked lots of anthropologists out of their complacency. That somehow we broadly knew about human evolution. There was a, there was a very important paper in Nature in, I don't know, mid-90s by Bernard Wood, the great, great paleontologist, about the evolution of Homo. And he said that, broadly, we now understand the evolution of Homo, and all our new discoveries are just putting little bits more of detail on that picture. And a few years later, Homo florensis was discovered, and it showed, no, there's massive things to still discover. Which is why I think human evolution and paleontology and archaeology still remain such exciting disciplines. Because however good sophisticated stories we get, there's always potential for discovering something absolutely brand new. Some bit of evidence that just knocks you off, knocks you off your perch. And uh, I think Florence has did that. <coughs> uh, just for information, there is a discipline called archaeomusicology. Yeah. Um, it covers uh, archaeologists, musicologists, also semioticians. Yeah. Also drawing from the semiotics of uh, psychoanalysis such as uh, Jacques Lacan. It goes far back as far back as about 3,000 years BC, yeah. uh, specializing in uh, uh, the Near and uh, Ancient Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. So there is already in place uh, yeah. a kind of uh, interdisciplinary dialogue. It's hosted at the IMR, the Institute of Musical Research, in Senators. Yeah. And there is a forthcoming conference on the Bronze Age, music and instruments of the Bronze Age period. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's already in place. And I would like to ask the audience, how many musicologists here? Yeah. No musicologists. Just one, one at the back. The one at the back and one yeah. at the back. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
Well, I mean, thank you for that. I mean, I, there is a, you know, the archaeomusicology, archaeomusicology is, is a fantastic, fascinating thing because what we see, I think, in especially in the early civilizations, is the importance of music in all those um, societies. Of course, one of the great discoveries was um, Leonard Woolley in the Tombs of Ur and the, and, the, and the Lion that he found there. But that's, that's been reconstructed. It's been reconstructed, that's right. It's, it's a British museum. Yeah. Fantastic. Richard Dunbreed, who actually created archaeomusicology. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a fantastic discipline. And the little bit I know is people are increasingly looking at the acoustics of archaeological sites, like the painting caves in France, people looked at the acoustics, see how do the acoustics work with the paintings of animals? And how do the acoustics of Neolithic burial monuments, what are they like? So try to think about what the scene would have been in that. So I think that's really important work in trying to grasp the role of music in ancient societies, terribly important. The way archaeomusicality sort of comes to an end, or a stop, or a or hindrance is when you go a little bit further back when there aren't any musical <laughs> instruments. But I think using the expertise within what's developed in that, which, I don't know whether you call it a subdiscipline or whatever, tremendously important. So, uh, you know, thank you very much for, for bringing that to me. Okay. Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, it's a lot of thought, but uh, and there is this history in uh, primatology of trying to teach chimps to speak, or at least yeah. to sign a song, that would mean chimps get on. But I mean, if your story is true, I mean, it would make more sense probably to do some music of some kind. I mean, at least they should have the, I mean, is there yeah. any sign that they understand music of any kind? I guess it's very hard to do that. But there are, there is some work on that. I think we have to be careful in terms of what we think with their particular brain size, anatomy, right. their involved adaptations are suitable for. So, for instance, there's been work done by Mark Howard at Harvard, who's looked at the sensitivity of, I think it's Marbazette's, to changes in um, octaves and things like that. And he argues that there's an immense amount of sensitivity there, that they're very good at recognizing different, recognizing different pitches and following them. Extremely good. I think the way, the way that, the one thing that, uh, other living primates don't seem to be able to do very well is a train to rhythm. <coughs> so nobody's actually managed to get a chimpanzee to tap along with a rhythm. Okay. They can't seem to entrain very well. And that's really critical to our almost all of our music abilities. I suspect that one of the things here is that that is a capacity we've evolved, probably as a chance byproduct of bipedalism and our, our, our movement movement, where side rhythm becomes much more important, and that enables us to engage in entrainment. And we naturally do it sometimes when we're walking with people, and you know, we entrain into their pace. And I think that's where it's coming from. And therefore, because other primates don't have good bipedalism, I think actually that's a, that's a hindrance on their evolved ability to engage with rhythm and entrainment. So I think in terms of pitch, there's probably a great deal more that can be done there. And I think sensitive to pitch is really quite heightened in animals. I think rhythm not so much, and that's partly an evolutionary story. Um, thank you. You've argued very persuasively um, the speculation, but you've also very much um, argued on the cognitive arguments. Yes. And I just wonder whether we should also put into play 
that, that for, evo for musical evolution to happen, there must be discrimination. The, the, the humans are to, must have a need or a, 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 to discriminate in favour of musical abilities or language abilities. And just to speculate, I mean, is that possibly to do with the fact that I mean, humans are pretty good at face recognition and also voice recognition, yeah. that to be able to distinguish between different voices might have been an early driver yeah. in, in both needing to you know, have a different voice from one from one's competitor and also being able to discriminate. I think, yes, I think so. I think that must be very important. You know, one of the things I was talking about earlier is in terms of being, in terms of that understanding the emotional state of another person by the particular tone of voice, by the rhythm, not, not using words. So I think that would have been important. But clearly, identify different individuals and identity by how they, by how they sound and how they move would have also been really important. And one of the key things that's happening with early hominins is that the foraging further distances away. So communication by sound, where there's no visual sight, would have been important. So not only being able to recognise a different individual by the sound, but recognising the sort of state that they're in, their emotional state, would have been important. So I think in terms of that discrimination, yes. And it, uh, again, I'll go back to those early habilis groups on the savannah, where lots of this sensitivity to sound, I think, is evolving. There's another aspect of discrimination that music uses, which is discriminating between groups. You know, we say, we talk about music as being important in bringing people together, cooperation. Of course, things such as national anthems uh, act the opposite, saying, this is our group, and we identify ourselves with this particular song and this music, or within countercultures. You know, punk rock, what was that about? That was about identifying a group within a society as having a distinct identity, or rock, or whatever, okay? So we use music to identify not only that we belong to a group, but to say, you don't belong with this. So music is terribly powerful in all these social, you know, all these social um, in interactions that we do, about identifying ourselves with a group, and saying, you're not, not, you're, you're not a group. And we know that, you know, what, you know, what, you know, I know they're pretty cliches, but some people say the most terrifying sound for at least the Germans of the First World War were the people playing the bagpipes over the trenches. You know, <coughs> music can be terrifying and it can be frightening. And it goes back to all that wide range of emotions that it induces and, and plays. And with that comes all of the complexities of our social interactions. <coughs> the part played by singing and dancing yes. in the development of early music. Yes. You didn't actually use the word words play or playing. No. And I just wondered whether one should perhaps accord a quite an important role to a human need to play. Yes. Yes, I would agree and I think uh, it's <coughs> remiss of me not to do that. I think you're right. We know that play activities is important in in all animals, especially social animals. And hence, it must have been even more important in the most socialised of all animals, uh, humans. And we know that certainly with modern humans, a really critical bit of play is playing with sound and playing with movement, etc. So, again, thinking about what would life have been like for 
Homo gaster, Homo erectus, with those sort of a bit like modern humans, but they've got these big babies, so there's a lot of that childcare. There must have been lots of play activities going on, which is playing that functional role of developing the sensitivity sound and movement and understanding that, just as in a way that play can also develop physical abilities. So I think that's remiss of me, and I think in future I'll certainly include that, include that in. And I suspect, I don't know, I suspect in development psychology there must be good literature there on musical play and the role it plays. We know it's certainly the case with young kids today, isn't it? I think nurseries and things like that. It's terribly possible. Um, yeah. um, this is in regards to what you're saying about standing up when they became up. Yes. Um, just that, that was when I guess rhythm came. And rhythm is probably one of the most important parts yeah. of music because without rhythm yeah. um, there is no music because animals have sounds and so I think, um, it depends how we define music, doesn't it? I mean, I'd like to talk about music because I don't know what music is really. So yeah. I think without rhythm, we but don't without have rhythm, the complex music of group today. Yeah. And so I think that's probably the most important development yeah. is rhythm because without rhythm, and that's why humans share music yeah. because they can share through rhythm and also. I'd, I'd really agree with that. I think, I think the evolution of bipedalism caused a musical revolution. Partly about all that breathing apparatus, uh, vocalisation apparatus, but I think the rhythm thing is really critical there. That enabled people to move together, to dance together, with all that entrainment. And I think that did really transform society in a way. So, if you, uh, I suppose if you wanted to, if you are going to define music, you'd say rhythm is essential to it. I'd say we can have a lot of music dancing without a good sense of rhythm. And I think there are some amusia conditions where people lack a sense of rhythm. Some amusia conditions are about pitch memory. I think there are some about a sense of patterns as well. Yes, remembering things through patterns. Yeah. The repetitiveness of something yeah. passing down that story. Yeah. I think my, my, when I was trying to sing and uh, failing, my teacher finally said, oh, you must be suffering amusia and whatever. And I think it's pitch memory. I have great difficulty remembering one pitch from another, which means you can't ever sing, can't ever sing properly because you can't remember what you sang just a minute ago. So. <laughs> Disaster. <Yeah. laughs> okay, well, but then unfortunately we're out of time for today. So please thank me. Uh, please. <laughs> <laughs>